You're listening to the audio from Tuesday Night Class at CA Church, located in Coquitlam, British Columbia. We hope this teaching helps you grow in your personal relationship with Jesus Christ. All right, well, welcome to uh, our week four of First Peter. We are just flying through the book. We begin chapter two tonight, and uh, it, it'll be a lot of fun. Let me uh, begin with prayer, and then we will dive into our passage tonight. Lord, we thank you for your grace, and we thank you for the joy of coming together this Tuesday night. Uh, and it is joyful. It is, it is fun to see brothers and sisters, even though it's through the medium of a piece of glass, the screen, uh, we are thankful that we can at least uh, gather this way. And we do thank you for your word, and we pray that you would speak to us through your word tonight that your word would go out and not return empty or void, but would penetrate our hearts and draw us closer to you. That's our desire. And we do lift up all these prayers to you tonight, not in our own strength, but in Jesus's name. Amen. All right. Well, this, uh, this past week, I did something I haven't done for a while. And I gave away three boxes of books. Yes, three boxes of books. Um, I felt like Marie Kondo. Uh, I felt like, you know, the whole decluttering movement. And uh, what, what does Marie Kondo ask? What, what's the question you're supposed to ask before you give something away? Does anybody know? Does this give me joy? Yeah. Does this give me joy? Does this item give me joy? And if it no longer gives you joy, you can get rid of it. Well, these books still gave me joy, but I've read them. Um, and so I invited our uh, pastoral apprentices into my office. I had meetings with each one of them. And I said, before we start, I give you three minutes to go through these boxes and take whatever books you want. Because I figure they're just starting off and they need books. Um, there are things that we need to get rid of. Um, what are some things that uh, you need to declutter in your own life? Can you think of anything? And it, you don't name a person, uh, but what are, what are some things that you need to declutter? John, you need to declutter of your record albums, right? <laughs> what are some things? Is anybody in a decluttering spring mode? It's an ongoing process in our house. Yeah. I think I'm going to find myself out the door one day along with the boxes. <laughs> <laughs> It's hard. Well, we, just moved, we just moved to a house half the size we had. So we did much decluttering and giving away. Was it hard? Yeah, yeah it was really hard and it was emotional. Yeah. But some of the stuff, there just wasn't a place for it. So it had to go. Interesting. It's very hard. <laughs> but it feels good. I feel, we feel like lighter, you know, yeah, just yeah, getting rid of so much stuff. Yeah. Huh. That's good. Somebody just told me to get rid of my shed. That was mean, but it is an old shed. I should get rid of it. Um, well, this idea of decluttering, this idea of getting rid of what we no longer should have around and feeling good about doing it is actually a theme in our passage tonight. And so we're going to look at First um, uh, Peter chapter 2 and then we're going to look at the first 10 verses. So if you have a Bible, turn to 1 Peter chapter 2, and let's read through this. 
First Peter chapter two, beginning in verse one. This is what Peter says. He says, so put away all malice, or you can put it this way, get rid of all malice, all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. Indeed, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those, so the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Wow. Another full passage, Peter. Uh, yeah. So last week, when we got together, we, we, we looked at... Um, you know, Peter's call, we, we, we looked at how the tone of the letter changed from what we call the indicative to the imperative. This, you know, the indicative is this is who you are. You are, you know, loved, you are born again. Uh, and then Peter says, okay, because of all these things, because you have this great inheritance, this is how you're supposed to live. And so last week, uh, we read about Peter saying, you know, gird up the loins of your mind, you know, prepare your mind for action. Uh, this is this is how we're called to live. We're called to live in, in obedience. And if we don't live in obedience and we go on in the old way of living, well, then we're living in ignorance. That's what Peter said. And so, he's, and so he calls us to live holy lives. And holy negatively means don't keep doing what you used to do. Positively means become holy, become set apart for God. He says, remember that God is your father. Yes, he's, he's your father, but he's also a judge. And you and I will one day have to give an account for how we lived our lives. And so we live our lives in an appropriate fear of the Lord, recognizing that our time here as exiles is a brief time. It's a short time. And um, while we are living here, we recognize that this is not our home. And so we meditate on what Jesus has done for us. And in response to that, we live in love and unity. And remembering, again, that our time here is brief, right? So that's basically what we covered last week. In this week, uh, this passage, um, Peter begins by calling us to purity and growth. Purity and growth, that's what's captured in these first three verses. Look, so put away all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for pure spiritual milk, 
that you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Let me ask you, um, in verse 1, there's a word that's repeated a few times. What's the word? Can You know what it is? Oh. All, yeah. All. That's very good. All shows up three times. Yeah. Um, all. It draws us back to what Peter's saying. He says, in, in everything you do, be holy, right? And so what, what, what God is reminding us through this word, I believe, is that he's not, see, God is not in the business of a modest program for self-improvement. God is in the business of renovating the heart. He wants all of us. And so part of living our lives completely belonging to God is we need to get rid of stuff. We need to get rid of stuff. And we need to get rid of stuff that does not befit our new identity in Christ. Right? And so he says, put away. He says, get rid of stuff. And so the language here is, is not this language of being passive and waiting on God. It's the language of come on, like gird up your loins and get rid of stuff. Get rid of stuff that, that basically undermines community, undermines love. And so, and, and that language of, um, of getting rid of is, 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 is quite strong in the Bible, like throughout the Bible, but especially in 1 Peter. Um, can you think of another, any other passages where we're told to get rid of stuff? Ephesians 4, 22. Yeah, very good. Yeah, in Ephesians, yeah. Paul often talks about getting rid of, or putting it differently, putting off and then putting on, right? That's a, that's a real big theme in, in, in the letters of Paul. And so basically what Peter's saying says, look, because of Jesus, you are born again. You are a new people. And so he says, start acting like it. Remember, that's the theme of the New Testament. This is who you are in Christ, so start acting like it. Not the other way around. You don't say, let's start acting like we're born again so that we are born again. No, no. We begin with grace. Because of grace, we are born again. We are new creations. And then all the biblical writers say, because of this is who you are, because of God's wonderful grace, uh, start acting like it. And so part of acting like it is getting rid of some habits that really undermine the community, such as malice malice is a desire to harm one another deception is lying to one another um hypocrisy pretending that you're someone that you're not pretending you're you're this holy person with it all together <laughs> have you ever seen that in the church maybe um don't envy one another like what is envy can anybody give me a quick definition of envy? Jealous of someone. Okay, it's like jealousy, but it's a little bit different. Because I could be jealous of Mike. You know, Mike is so good at computers. Mike is so smart. Mike knows so many. I could be jealous and want to be like Mike. But that's different than envy. That's part of envy. But what else is, is goes with envy? 
to want what they have. Yeah, Joseph, I think that's, yeah. Pull them down to your level. Yeah, I also want Mike not to be so good. So it's not so much that I want to be like him. It's like, I'd rather him not be that good. And I'd like to pull him down a few notches. I, in fact, I actually want not good things to happen to Mike. So that's, that's a, it's a little bit different than, than jealousy. It's, it's actually this desire to pull a person down. Um, yeah, and you don't speak evil of a brother or sister. Run somebody down. And so basically what Peter's saying is like, these are things you got to get rid of. And if you want to know what the opposite looks like, read 1 Corinthians 13. And that gives you a picture of what love actually looks like, right? And once we get rid of this stuff, then then we can start to grow in our Christian life. And so the, the metaphors are quite interesting because sometimes the metaphor is the idea of putting off and putting on. Put off your old self and put on your Christ clothes, think Colossians 3. The other image, the other metaphor, and this one resonates with me these days, is that of pruning. Because I've taken up gardening during COVID. I have no idea what I'm doing, but I've taken up gardening and I've learned something that when you prune, things actually grow better unless you over prune, which I've done and killed things, but that's another whole story. Um, but when you prune something, it actually comes back the next year and, and grows better. Who knew? <laughs> you guys all knew this, but I'm learning these things, but I think that holds the same in, in our spiritual life that we need to get rid of in order to grow. And that's what Peter's getting at right at the beginning of this passage to put away, to get rid of. And then he says, and then we can grow. What does he say? So that you may grow up into salvation. You may gr grow up into the person that you are meant to be right now. Notice what he says. He says in verse two, he says, he says, like newborn infants long for pure spiritual milk. Um, okay, easy question. In what ways are newborn infants different from adults? Other than size, we know that they're smaller. Completely dependent. They're completely dependent. Well done. What else? And only drink milk. Cannot yeah, they drink. can only drink milk. Yes, yeah, they can only drink milk. Can't drink pop. They shouldn't drink pop. Um, anything else? Always learning. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they, 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 they're starting from almost zero. Like, they're, they're taking everything in. Yeah. Peter, are you going to say something? So they are selfish and demanding. They're selfish and demanding. They don't know what they need. Right. And they need to be taught what they need. Right. Yeah. That's good. <laughs> They're toothless. <laughs> they are toothless. That's also true. Um, Peter, he reminds, he reminds these believers in the church. And remember, a lot of them are, are from a pagan background, it, it, it looks like. Um, he compares them to newborn infants. That's an interesting uh, metaphor. Um, why does he compare them to newborn infants? Well, I think one, it, it fits with his idea that 
we are in Christ, we experience new birth. We are new beings. We have a new identity, right? You think of Second Corinthians five, um, but also First uh, Peter one. And secondly, is like Gloria was saying, to remind them of their dependent nature. Um, Peter, he's just pointed out, yeah, you got to get rid of a lot of stuff. But now he says, you don't just get rid of stuff. You need to replace it, right? Because if you just get rid of envy, it doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be filled with love, <laughs> right? It just means you're not going to be envious. But he says, you need to replace all these things with what is going to help you grow up in Christ, and so he says, so the language he uses, he says, we need a diet of pure spiritual milk. And basically, we need to get rid of the foods that harm us, that may taste good, like Netflix tastes good, all sorts of things. Actually, gossip tastes good. We do call it a juicy piece of gossip for a reason. And if, well, I'll just speak for myself. Sometimes gossip tastes good. Did you hear about, and as Christians, we can dress it up in spiritual language. We need to pray for Mike because did you hear what he's been doing, right? That's how we do it, right? We, we, we dress it up with pious language. But not all the things that we crave are necessarily good for us. And we won't necessarily grow. And it's interesting what Peter says. He says, long, long, or another translation, crave, long for spiritual, pure spiritual milk. It's a strange command to long for something. How, well, let me ask you this. How do you grow to long for something? Like if, if I said to you, so let's say, you know, Peter, I, you know, I see you down there. I say, Peter, you know, you should long, long for this. Um, and how, how, do you, how do you learn to long for something? I think when you realize that you're deficient. Okay, good. Yeah. Keep going. Keep going. Not only, are you, I think that's part of it for sure. And you see, you see what, what you're missing. Yeah, and, that's and what good. You can have. Yeah, yeah. Well, and it's interesting. What is that? He he says, he says you've tasted that the Lord is good, right? When you've had a taste, like I had that when 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 I wasn't a Christian, I saw in the life of people around me something that I knew I was lacking in my own life. And it created a longing for to be a different person. I remember somebody saying something about me in uh, in Chinese at a bar in Beijing, and uh, she, this woman said something. It wasn't very nice about my character. She was right, but it wasn't very nice. And my heart uh, awoke with a desire to get rid of that, but also a desire to be someone different. Longing gets stronger, David, once we have tasted or experienced it yes. and experienced some of the successes of 
whatever that venture might be. So, okay, there's been a positive change. Um, so I'm longing to get more of that feeling. Yeah. More of that experience. That's good. So let me ask you this, though. What do you do when you do not, when you don't feel this longing? I mean, some of you are spiritually feeling very dry. And you know, yes, I ought to be longing for a deeper, you know, I, I ought to be longing for pure spiritual milk. But truth be told, you're not. What do you I, do? Uh, I, I learned something about hungry in a, in a normal human being. When they're hungry, they will get more hungry when they're not eating the food. But when it comes to spiritual dimension, the longer you go without spiritual food, you will, you will not want to eat. You will not go for it. There will be no hunger. So it's kind of like the other way around. The more spiritual food, the more love I have, I want more. Uh, yeah, interesting. That's, uh, that's the, analogy, the analogy between physical and spiritual are completely different. Yeah, that's good. That's good. So what happens if some of you are in, I mean, what people call the dark night of the soul, where God feels far, far away? When you pray, it sounds like you're praying to the ceiling or feels like you're praying to, to the ceiling. Um, you know, you've been in isolation for this past year. You haven't seen a whole lot of people. You're feeling discouraged and your heart is heavy and you don't have that longing. What do you do? Might there be a comparison to exercise? I mean, I've heard this of people at least that they develop the habit of exercising and then when they stop it, they, their body longs for it. I've never gotten to that place. I'm quite comfortable with not exercising, but I've heard that's how it works for some people. I, I read it in a book. <laughs> well, no, I, I, I mean, Eugene Peterson talks about um, acting yourself into a state of feeling. Yeah. And, uh, and, there, and there may be something to that. I think there's something, you know, that I, I think we, we're honest before God. Because it's not like we can fool him. It's not like, oh, Lord, I long to be in your presence. If, if you don't long, if, if anyone knows it, God knows, right? Um, so there's no sense trying to fool God by being more pious than you, than you are. Um, but my prayer often is, Lord, I don't feel like praying i really don't but i want to feel like praying i want I, in fact i long to long for you and i do and that's all i got right now and so i present that to you i long to long for you and i think we we begin where we're at and um and i, th I think that's important because you can only begin where you're at. And there are times, and I've, I've, you know, been a Christian long enough and I've talked to other people long enough and I've studied history long enough to know that these um, periods of dryness happen. And I, I, and I like what some of you guys have posted uh, to remember, yeah, to remember, sometimes that's a good idea with, with journals as you look back in your journals, it's like, oh yeah, there was a day where I was actually quite alive. And yeah, I kind of long for that as well. 
Um, someone, uh, Mary uh, or Ken, I'm not sure who wrote it, uh, read a good book. Um, yeah, count your blessings, yeah. I've heard um, Daryl Johnson talk about the three by 10, where you write down 10 things you're thankful for, take five minute breaks, then another 10, five minute break, and then another 10. The last two groups of 10 are hard, but then something happens to your heart. I think one of the other things is to cultivate your imagination and wonder. And everything in our culture flattens our imagination. And Laurie, I know you would agree with this, but the, the need to, to uh, instill a sense of wonder. And, and reading a good book will do that. It, it will. But be honest. Many of my prayers is I long to long to know you. <laughs> so, yeah. So Peter says long for pure spiritual milk. Now, I just want to say this, the um, pure spiritual milk is a very odd Greek expression. Like it's kind of a, it's a very strange expression actually, because the word spiritual is not the usual word for spiritual that's used. The, the usual word for spiritual is this word uh, pneumaticos. That's where you get pneuma, that's where you get um, um, pneumonia. That's where you get the word pneumonia. But it's a different word. It's more the word, it's what the word is called logikos or whatever but it 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 relates to reason so it's it's pure spiritual milk or pure reasonable milk in some ways and i think it's connected to um reading the word of god and the value of the word of god i think that's what peter's getting at uh he had just finished talking about that if you remember at the at the end of uh, chapter one and when we are struggling sometimes to read God's word and meditate on God's word. I mean, it helps. It helps. Um, and yeah, and I think that's what Peter is, is, is getting at, that uh, to grow in our faith, we need to be regularly feeding on God's word and not feeding on stuff that doesn't sustain us. Do you remember in China? I remember this a number of years ago. It was tragic, but in China, I think it was in the old province where I used to live, Anhui province, there was this um, there was this um, baby formula, the baby milk that was sold uh, and, and people were buying it, but it was, they cut corners in, in the factory where they made it and there was no nutrition in it. And so you had all these babies drinking milk regularly, but starving to death. And I thought, wow, what a picture, you know, we can eat all sorts of things that probably we shouldn't be eating and starve to death, right? Um, yeah. And then he says, and we've touched on this, he says, um, he says, taste, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Um, and that connects, you know, verse three um, connects to verse two. He's basically saying that, um, if you have tasted that the Lord is good, you're going to want more. And, uh, and Don, that's what you're, you're emphasizing as well. And it's interesting. You've tasted and seen that the Lord is good. Tasted that the Lord is good. There's an echo of scripture from the Old Testament. And it's from Psalm 34, verse 8. But it's interesting. This tasted and seen that the Lord is good is applied to God in in, in, in um Psalm 34, but here it's being applied to Jesus. And it's quite interesting how the New Testament writers take 
verses that are applied to Yahweh, to, to God, and use them very seamlessly to apply to Jesus, which I think we need to pay attention to. Um, okay, so why is all this important? Peter's, his concern is that we will grow up into salvation. We need to grow up into salvation. And if, if you try to navigate life, if you remain a baby and you never grow up, try to make it through life. It's going to be hard. If you never grow up beyond the infant stage, you're in a lot of trouble. And so that's why Peter's saying you need to crave pure spiritual milk so that you can grow up in your faith and navigate the challenges that come your way, such as being an elect exile in a world that's increasingly hostile towards Christianity, towards Christians. Okay. So let me ask you this. I'm going to actually, yes, I'm going to break you into a group. Yes, I am. But it's an easy question. It's a very easy question. Um, what are some just practical steps that we haven't maybe talked about so far that can help you grow in your faith? Right? That's pretty easy. And some of you would be like, I don't know, but that's good because then you can ask people around you, what are some steps that I could take to grow, to grow so that you can taste and know that the Lord is good? Okay, what are some practical steps that you can take? So write them down or type them down and then we'll, we'll regather in a few minutes, okay? So I'm gonna break into a few groups, very simple question. What are some practical, tangible steps you can take to grow in your salvation, to grow in your faith, okay? Sound good? Here we go, I'll break into a group for a few minutes. Uh, There we go. <laughs> Good to see everybody back. Let me hear from you. Give, give me some ideas. What are some uh, What are some ways that you can grow in your faith? Just either throw it throw it on the chat or or uh, or mention it. Yeah, just yeah, a life group. group. Join a, a life, life group. group. Yeah. Oh, okay. So community is absolutely key. Yeah. Very good. Somebody in the group mentioned take David's classes. <laughs> Whoever said that was very wise. Yes. So yes, that's very good. Well, I think it's important for us to get together um, and study God's word or study things about, uh, about faith. Silence and solitude. Silence and solitude in a very noisy, busy world is so important it's interesting how much of life we now spend surrounded with music one of the most disturbing trends i've seen is um, music that's played in the shower now that you can you know get waterproof you know bluetooth speakers or whatever and i thought well you know the shower is one of the few places where it was somewhat silent um yeah, there aren't too many silent places left. Sorry, I'm always, I'm, I, I heard an interview with this one writer, and, uh, Pete, I think I was telling you about this. Um, and, and the book is called um, Three, Three Pieces of Glass. And saying how so much of our life is mediated through three pieces of glass, whether it be our cell phone or our TV for Netflix or our 
um, windshield on our, on our cars because we don't walk places. We're always in a hurry to go places. And he talks about how those three pieces of glass really shape the soul. It is fascinating. Yeah, that's good. Silence and solitude. Praying, listening to God, meditating on his words, seeing God's nature in God, God in nature. Yeah, rid the sins regularly, seeking God's love and the Holy Spirit, praying in tongues and life group. Okay, good. In our group, we said uh, obedience and discipline. Yeah, obedience and discipline. Yeah. Huh. Good. Well, this is good. I mean, and these are things, I mean, God has given us all sorts of gifts of grace. Um for us to grow in him. And um, one of the things, uh, Martha, I'm just going to repeat what, what you had said, if that's okay, I, about um, the importance of friendship and to have someone who loves you, who knows you, you know, he's not, he or she's not overly impressed with you, but they love you and they listen to you and they challenge you. And, and, Boy, we need people like that in our lives. We don't need an echo chamber. We don't need just cheerleaders. We need people that will kind of push back and challenge us lovingly as well. Yeah. Paying attention to God's prophetic word because you see that his word is true. Yeah. Listening to sermons. Yeah. Good. Well, anyhow, that I mean, this is the first part of this passage where Peter is saying, look, we need to... Um, get rid of all the stuff that gets in the way of us loving one another. And then we need to crave long for pure spiritual milk so that we can grow up in our faith. Um, and then he shifts gears in verse four and he shifts gears a little bit by looking at the church and look at verse four. He says, and you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves are like living stones, are being built up into, as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And uh, I mean, in this section, Peter talks about three things. He talks about one, he says, when believers come to Christ, they're also coming to the church. He has a lot to say about the church and the image of the church. And he says, when we taste and see that the, that the Lord is good, we will come to him. Notice that he says this, as you come to him, as you come to him, a living stone, um, God builds up his people into a spiritual house, the church. And one of the things that's fun about Peter and, and all the uh, writers do this, um, more so than we do today, Peter, he will shift metaphors at the drop of a hat. <laughs> we go from being you know, infants to stones to priests. <laughs> We're all over the place. He just, he'll just shift metaphors back and forth. Um, so now he, he, shifts, he shifts the focus from growing in him to coming to him. We do, uh, we, we, in the Christian life, we do come to the person. We come to Jesus. We don't, believe in a philosophy or a worldview, but we come to a person. And that's important for us to remember. And in order to be built up, we must recognize what we're a work in progress. We need to grow. We need God to change us. But the place where this change happens is the church. 
And the whole picture of the Christian life is understood within the context of the church. Now, this is important because what it tells us is that there's no room for the, you know, I like Jesus, I just don't like the church kind of thing. I often hear people say that, you know, I like Jesus, I love Jesus. Um, I just don't like the church. I'm like, it doesn't work that way. Uh, the place where we grow in our faith is the place of the church. It is the context of community. Um, and so there's no place for a me and Jesus and nobody else kind of approach, which is hard, especially in our individualist uh, culture. But the context for spiritual growth, the context, text for the Christian life is the church. And that's hard because, you know, when you go to church, you don't always see people that you like, or you don't always see characteristics that you like, but hey, that's okay. They may look at you and say the same thing. <laughs> and that's where, you know, guys like um, C.S. Lewis uh, in his screw tape letters is so good because Lewis talks about that. Uh, but the church, he says, you know, you look across the pew and you see the greasy butcher and then you see the person who's singing slightly out of tune or really out of tune or, you know, and that's the thing in the church, you're going to get a real mixed bag of people, but that's okay. That's, that's where you and I learn patience. You stand beside someone who kind of rubs you the wrong way. That's how you learn patience. And we're all, we're all messed up. We're all, we're all in need of, we're all on the way. We're all in the process of growing. So that's the first thing. The second thing is the church, um, Peter says, is like a temple. He, he compares it to the, to, to the uh, Jewish temple. And in many ways, it fun fulfills the function of the temple. Um, again, he's fluid with his imagery. He compares the readers to infants, then to stones, and then to a house. He says they are like precious living stones that God has chosen to use to build his spiritual house. And like Jesus, they have been rejected by man. Um, they um, likely, and we know this from the first century, there was, there was a time period where there was a time where the church could be protected from persecution by the Roman Empire because the church was seen as a Jew, where they were seen as Jews, as a Jewish, as part of Judaism. Until the Jews said, ah, these guys are not with us. And the moment Christianity became distinct from Judaism, then it became um, susceptible to persecution by the Roman Empire. And so that this happens um, in the late first century. And so there is some growing hostility from, from Jewish populations towards these, this crazy, strange new group called Christians. Um, and, and Peter knows that. They're likely being told that, um, you know, they were likely um, criticized for not, having a temple or not having a, a sacrificial system. Um, you know, how are you going to relate to God if you cannot, you know, carry out sacrifices for their sins? 
But Peter, he, he, he assures them. He gives them confidence. He reminds them, you don't need a temple. Because why? You are the temple. You are the temple. The Holy Spirit lives in you. You are priests. And we'll talk about that. Um, and you're not priests that have to give sacrificial offerings. What, what you are is you're priests that will give uh, offerings of praise and offerings of thanksgiving. You are God's holy people. And we come across this picture of the church being a spiritual house or a temple. Where else do you come do you come across this in the Bible? Do you know? Can you think of other places where, well, where Roman uh, Romans twelve, uh, or when it says that we are the temple? Uh, wait, yeah. your body is the temple. Yeah. Well, the, yeah. Eight or twelve. Well, there's there's two those two passages in First um, Corinthians. Those ones that my mind went to is um, well, there's Romans eight. There's a reference in Romans eight. Um, in First Corinthians three, it talks about the church being the temple of the Holy Spirit. And then First Corinthians uh, or uh, six, where the individuals are the temple of the Holy Spirit. But this language is used apparently. You know, it's used in Ephesians two, John fourteen, Romans eight. 2 Timothy 1, 1 John 3. And so this language is, is really um, part of the New Testament, that being in Christ, being in Christ, we um, are the temple, that we, that the church uh, fulfills many of the functions of the temple in, 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 um, in filled by the Holy Spirit. And, and then Peter's telling them this, and he's telling them this because it's interesting because he talks about shame. Look what he says in verse six. He says, for it stands in scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And he talks about shame. And I think that's intentional. Because I think the church is not undergoing like severe persecution, but they are being ridiculed by different parts of society and they are being shamed. And so Peter's saying, look, you don't need to be ashamed. You don't need to be ashamed because you know what? The kind of sacrifices that you are offering are actually acceptable to God. And these, sacrifice, these sacrifices that need to be done over and over again don't need to be done anymore. They're no longer acceptable to God because the sacrifice has been done once and for all through Jesus Christ. And, and so you do not need to be ashamed. The ones who will experience shame are the ones that reject, who re, are, are the ones that um, the builders rejected, right? And that's the third part, is that the, the, the center of the church is Jesus Christ. The center of the church is Jesus Christ. It's not about um, the sacrifices, the sacrificial system. It's Jesus is at the center. We are living stones, but at the very foundation, the cornerstone, the, 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 the stone on which all the other stones can manage to, to, to not crumble is Jesus Christ. And, uh, and in order to communicate this, Peter, he just goes to the Old Testament. He quotes from Isaiah 28, 
Um, and he talks about the, the that, that um, yeah, in Isaiah 28, he says, Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Um, and again, this picture of shame is important because in, in our own culture today, I mean, for you, if you're at work um, or you're going around your business and to say that you are a follower of Jesus Christ is increasingly difficult to do these days. Um, and oh, it's easy as a Christian to feel shame. It's easy to say, okay, well, maybe, you know, who am I to, you know, to believe these kind of things, this kind of exclusive truth. But the, the Peter's point is like, no, the, the, one, the ones who will ultimately experience shame are the ones that reject Jesus. They're the ones that will experience shame. And by you clinging to Jesus, your status is not that of shame, but of what? Of honor. It's a picture of honor. The current status is not of shame, but of honor because they believed in Jesus Christ. And those who do not, those who reject the cornerstone are the ones who will stumble on, on this rock and be crushed by it. Now, let me just say one, one thing before we, we, we keep going, because some of you biblical nerds out there, no doubt when you look at these passages that Peter quotes, if you actually look at in your Old Testament and you look at where these passages are from, you will notice something. What will you notice? You will notice that the translation is not really that word for word. It seems like Peter's playing kind of fast and loose with drawing from these Old Testament passages. Why is that? Does anybody know why? And you find this not just in Peter, but in Paul's writings as well. When, when they quote from the Old Testament, sometimes if you actually look in your Bible to the Old Testament, it's like, wait a minute, that doesn't quite fit. Have you ever noticed that? Or has anybody ever gone back to some of you teachers here where you're probably like, well, let's see their sources, you know, see if they're plagiarizing. Um, why is it? Yeah, Kevin's got it. Kevin put the LXX. Um, the reason why the translations sometimes look different, the quotations sometimes look different, is you have to realize is that for the Jews, they access different Old Testaments, different, different uh, versions. You know, we have the NIV, the ESV, KJV, different translations. For them, they, there would be, you know, two main ones. One would be the Masoretic Hebrew text, the Old Testament, what we would call the Old Testament. And then there is the Septuagint, which is the LXX, which is the, uh, stands for 70. There are 70 scholars that translated it. And the Septuagint is a Greek translation of the Old Testament. And in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, some of the translations is different. What you have in your Old Testament is a translation from this text called the Masoretic text, which is a Hebrew text. The Septuagint is different, slightly different. And so that accounts for many of the discrepancies you see. I'm just laying that out because some of you who are good scholars, you know, look back and say, like, oh, wait a second, Peter, that's not exactly what Isaiah said. Well, that, I think, explains it. Hopefully that helps. But when somebody taught me that, it's like, oh, well, that kind of makes sense. Any questions on that one? Comments?
or you're like, you don't care. Okay. Um, yeah, so anyhow, the whole point that Peter's making is that the true shame, if you're talking about shame, is those who reject the cornerstone. Um, they are the ones that will experience shame. They are the ones who have taken offense of the living, so of, of the cornerstone, Jesus Christ. And that's the thing. And this theme shows up over and over again in scripture. You could go to work this weekend, or you could hang out with your friends and you could talk about God. And most people will be okay with that. The moment you mention the J word, it gets a little awkward. Mention next time you're at your board meeting. <laughs> so Brent, next time you're in your staff meeting at work, mention Jesus. Just say the name of Jesus and see how that goes over. I'll tell you, it won't go over very well um, because there's something about Jesus that people struggle with. People are okay with God. People are okay with a higher power. People are okay with, you know, the, the great beyond or whatever it happens to be. The moment you talk about Jesus Christ, things are going to get awkward. They just will. I guarantee you. And, and you know what? Compared to 10 years ago, things are even more awkward. Would you agree? You don't have to agree, but. I think I've, you know, I find myself when I'm in public, you know, just kind of like, huh, should I say Jesus's name? Because to say Jesus is, 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 um, is awkward. But this is um, Peter's point. He is a stone over which people will stumble. Paul makes the very same point. Yeah, I think somebody pointed that out. Um and their rejection of Jesus will be their own undoing. It'll become a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And then Peter says, they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Okay, <laughs> this is interesting. Peter, led by the Spirit, says something. He says, they will stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Now, the first part we can get, okay, uh, people stumble. They stumbled because they disobeyed Jesus. They didn't recognize who Jesus was. They refused the gospel. They said Jesus did not die, did not rise from the dead. They will not acknowledge him. Okay, that makes sense. But then what does it say? Then it says, as they were destined to do. What does that mean? As they were destined, they were destined to disobey the word? What in the world is Peter saying? Michelle? <laughs> because everybody's not chosen. Oh, yeah. Is that what he's saying? Is, is, is this a question of election? Is that what we're, is, is happening here? That some are destined... Some people would say, in fact, the one commentator I read today, uh, uh, one, one of the commentators said, is this an example of double predestination, which is what some Christians believe, that God predestines some to eternal life and God predestines some to destruction, to hell. And depends if you're a Calvinist or Arminian, Joseph. Yeah, that's true. That is true. Uh, what does this mean? Well, 
I don't think that this is about predestination or anything like that. I don't think that's what this, this passage at least is saying. Uh, what Peter is doing is he's explaining the unbelief that people may have towards Jesus in light of these Old Testament passages. Because these Old Testament passages, quoting from the Psalms, quoting from Isaiah, and, he, um, and even later he quotes from Hosea, are all talking about people. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a call to Israel to repent and recognizing that some will turn and repent and some will not. And so I think what he's referring to is he's anticipating what the Old Testament prophets were saying, that there will come a day where some will respond well and some will reject. It's not, they're not making, I don't think Peter's making a comment on predestination. That seems to be more Paul's thing. And even then we could, we could talk about that. Um, he's saying, you know, Peter's basically saying, Jesus is the only way to salvation. To reject him is to end up in destruction. So, uh, that said, go ahead. So sorry, David. Because no, that's that's okay. the, when the, 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 the farmer uh, threw the seeds, some of the seed goes in the very shallow soil and they, they, they grow a little bit and they're going to be grab it and doesn't grow that much that's why somehow it looks like that because the indifferent souls that seeds gonna be yeah but know? some of the soil is people that are choked with the worries and the cares of this world and and, mm -hmm. and do not receive it and some have an have a heart to receive the word of god that's why i'm um, saying maybe can be this part of that one they says you mentioned for the Paul, maybe going to be, sorry, Peter, maybe going to be this, these two parts, the two first part, that's very shallow soil and the other ones, a lot of torn comes around them because of the war yeah. and that one, and they don't get. Yeah. I, I just, I'm not sure if that parable uh, teaches uh, predestination. I think it's, it's just talking about the state of your heart and is your heart receptive to the, to the things of God. Um, it, this, I mean, we can't, I mean, it's 8.07. It'll only take like four days for us to unpack this one. Um, I do think uh, there's a way, I, I do think that the Bible affirms a number of things. The Bible affirms that God is sovereign. It affirms that God is loving. It affirms that God is the one who draws us to himself. Uh, God gives us eyes to see and ears to hear and a heart to receive and that we can say yes or we can harden our hearts and say no. And I think the mystery, and when I say mystery, I'm not saying <laughs> mystery, who knows? It's I think there are intentional positive mysteries in the Bible and the mystery here is the mystery of of human free will that we do have choice um and the bible affirms this over and over again people making choices uh jesus calling people to respond as well as this picture of god's complete sovereignty and providence over all of history um and and the bible affirms both and so 
that's where I leave it. And I don't go beyond that. And I think to go beyond that is you're treading in areas that maybe go beyond. Well, I shouldn't say that because that who am I to question John Calvin? But uh, I'm not sure if 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 um, if we're meant to go beyond that. I think those two things are are held in tension and are both affirmed. And it's in that center point is where where the mystery of God is found. A very helpful book. I haven't mentioned, I haven't given you a book recommendation for like a whole class. Here you go. Read this one here. This is a fantastic book. It's called The Mystery of God. Again, the mystery of God is not this idea of like, who knows, it's just a mystery. He says that is not how the mysteries of God have been understood, at least in church history and theology. The mystery of God is a positive thing and helps us actually navigate through some of the complexities that we encounter in scripture. There we go. David, question. I guess the most. Oh. Go, go ahead, Kevin. Uh, I'm just wondering if this might specifically be talking about the Jewish system, sort of. Uh, and that would go along with Paul, where he says, like, you were the tree, and then uh, God sort of removes you for a while, and the Gentiles are grafted in, not all Jews, of course, because, of course, Peter was a Jew and <laughs> the first believers were all Jews, but I'm just wondering, cause it talks about the stone, which the builders rejected. So it's not kind of the world rejecting Christ at this point. Is it not the Jewish system? They rejected yeah. Christ. Yeah. And so, well, uh, yeah. And it's kind I of appointed in a way so that the church comes into existence and Gentiles have the chance to be grafted in and, and yet yeah. Israel still plays a part. And, yeah, no, I think, I think you're on, on the mark. I think, I think what Peter is, primarily getting at and in other letters it expands it beyond that but i think what peter is primarily getting at is some of the opposition that they were getting from the jewish population mm -hmm, yeah. within the within, I, I think you're right on the mark and i think that explains the language that peter is using in response to it good yeah yeah but i think you can expand it and and, and paul expands it to you know uh, people who um who uh, who reject the cornerstone? Who who, who reject? But, yeah, but yeah, that's good. Good comment. Okay, so uh, there's one other question. I think. Yeah, Thanks, I was just going to say the most important thing is I think uh, I don't know if it's where it's written, but it's the most important thing is that whosoever may will may come. The invitation is open to everybody. And yeah. I think God in this foreknowledge knows who will choose and who won't. Yeah. I agree. I agree. That being said, I have very good friends who are very strong Calvinists who would, um, would make a different argument. And, you know, Calvin was no dummy. I mean, Calvin was not a Calvinist. You also have to realize, if you're wondering, John Calvin is a guy who lived 500 years ago, and he had a high picture of God's sovereignty, and he said, you know, God elects those who are going to be his children, and by doing so, it also means that he elects others to damnation. Um, and uh, so there's been a long 500-year debate, actually goes longer than that, on this topic, because there's some tension in scripture, just as I was laying out. But um, 
What we end up at the end of our passage is Peter saying, look in verse 9. He says, but you, he's talking to the church. He says, you are a chosen race. Listen to the language he uses. A royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you were not, you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. It's interesting. This passage is so rich, but there are so many echoes from these Isaiah passages as well. So Hosea passages, um, there's just, it's, it's like Peter. And, and this is important for us to realize these guys, they know the Bible so well that it just, it just comes out of their pores uh, because they're not even quoting directly at times, but that picture of darkness and the marvelous light. And it's all echoing uh, these passages that Peter just finished quoting in Isaiah. And you see, it's on his radar. It's on his radar. And it just permeates everything that he writes. Yeah. And so he says, all right. And, and I think, Kevin, to your point, that he is responding to Jewish opponents saying, hey, you guys aren't the people of God. He says, no, we are the people of God. And look at the language he uses to describe the church. He uses these five phrases. You're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a holy people. You are God's special possession. Think of that, those words. To, and, to, and you are called to proclaim the excellencies of him who called you. So there are chosen people and a, ro a royal priesthood. And all this language is, is a picture of God's um, sovereign care for his church. And Peter reminds them, he says, look, you guys bring nothing to the table. And again, I think this is a, another echo of the fact that a lot of them are Gentiles. He says, he says, once you were not a people, right? Once you were not a people but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You used to be nothing, but now you are. And this is a picture of God's grace. Um, God has poured mercy on them and made his very own people. And he uses the language that was applied to Israel and he applies it to the followers of Jesus. And um, in this passage, we get you also get the doctrine of the uh, priesthood of all believers, this idea that, that every single one of us, if we're a follower of Jesus Christ, you are a priest. And what does a priest do? A priest mediates the truth of God to someone. They stand in between. He says, this is what we are called to be as priests. Um, every Christ follower is filled with the Holy Spirit, and we mediate between our our family members, that person that you meet at work or that person at school and, and you mediate and say, you know, this is who Jesus is. And you, and you proclaim, what does he say? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And so sometimes people say, well, I'm a, I, I like Jesus. I'm going to follow Jesus, but I, I don't like telling people about Jesus. Well, he says, no, that's part of who we are, that we proclaim. And what do we proclaim? We proclaim this. It's like, man, but for the grace of God, I was toast. But for the grace of God, I am in darkness. God, in his grace through Jesus Christ, brought me out of darkness into his marvelous light, and he can do the same for you.
And I think that's one of the things that you and I, and it's very difficult. I don't know about you, but I find it increasingly difficult to do so. And Peter talks, he's going to come back to this again, because later on he talks about always be ready to give, you know, reason for, um, for what you believe, right? To, to give a good defense for what you believe. And we have to be willing to proclaim and to give testimony to what Jesus has done in history and in our lives. Because it is not just good news, it's marvelous news. It's, it's, and, and, and it lifts up the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into light. God in his great mercy brings us into the marvelous light. How can we not tell the world around us? And I think that's one of our challenges, that God has saved us, not to just twiddle our thumbs, but he's saved us for a purpose. And that is to take the truth of who Jesus is to the ends of the world. And, uh, and, and, Peter's really emphasizing that. He's saying, look, this is who you are. You are the church. You are a royal priesthood. You are God's special possession. You are a holy nation. You're a people set apart for a purpose. And will you live out the purpose for which he has called you? Any thoughts on that? When I, when, actually, when I say that... We are called to proclaim the excellencies who called us out of darkness into light. The idea of proclaiming this to a family member, a friend, a colleague, how does that make, how does that sit with you? What, come, what, what, what emotions come to mind? Intimidated. Intimidated. Explain. Can you unpack that a bit more? I just feel that they're, I'm kind of on trial and they're going to judge me by what I say. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Good. What else? A little bit of fear of uh, rejection maybe or ridicule. Yeah. Of ridicule and shame and rejection. Yeah. Unequal to the task. Unequal to the time. What do you mean by that, Mike? It just, there's, in particular, my brother has, uh, like, he's got his master's degree from Regent. And after that, that's when he rejected his faith. And so in trying to talk to him and trying to uh, live out my life, uh, live out my faith um, in, in, his, in his viewing, it's, I'm intimidating. I, I'm unequal to the task because, I mean, in one sense, if he's smarter than me. So it's, mm. yeah, it's difficult. Yeah. Huh. Yeah, we're not starting out with people that, you know, don't have <laughs> preconceived notions and ideas and it, there's always pushback, right? And people have, you know, strong opinions and firm beliefs of their own. So it's, it's, uh, <laughs> it's awkward and it's difficult. It's yeah, no, it is. Now, do you do you find? Tell me if you do you find that um, the fear factor and the awkwardness, as you were saying, Pete, um, that 
that awkwardness and that fear and that discomfort and not being equal to the task has, has grown over COVID over this past year? Or is it just still the same? I think it's not just COVID. I think it's just the politically correct way to behave has, has shifted from being able to speak your mind. You can't really 100% speak your mind anymore because you're going to offend somebody. Yeah. So it's not just COVID. I think it's just the way the world is going on political correctness. Yeah, I, I would agree. I, I'm wondering, though, and I'll just like whether or not my nerve has been affected by the fact that we have not been gathering together. Because part of part of the uh, the, the strength that we have is the idea that um, we need to be reminded almost daily that we are not crazy to believe what we believe. And one of the ways we do that is by gathering to worship and to hear God's word and to encourage one another by speaking to one another um, and not being able to do that for over a year now. I'm wondering has, whether or not that has affected, I'll speak for myself, my own nerve and my own courage to speak out about Jesus. Iron sharpens iron, right? So it's inevitable if you're not gathering. And... Yeah, I, I wonder about that. Go ahead, Peter. Yeah, I, uh, I think if you're talking about sharing the gospel, there are so many different ways. You know, you could go to the supermarket, say thank you to the checkout lady and give her a small booklet about salvation. Uh, somebody, little kid, you know, done something good for you or you see your neighbors, you give them something to eat and then give them a, another another booklet. Or when you go to see a doctor, you could leave a small booklet. So sharing the gospel on the one-to-one, -one, you, you might be too busy or you might not be, uh, you might find it intimidating, but it does not stop you doing it. There is no reason to stop doing it. It depends on, so that's, I'm just talking about the process. Uh, if you are looking for different ways of sharing the gospel, you could also fund missionaries. They can share the gospel while you give them more money because at this time of the year, when no one is giving them the resources, many of them are starving and don't pay their rent and go on the street. So there are many different ways of sharing the gospel. But if you're talking about sharing the gospel because you are ashamed or sharing the gospel because you have to talk to your brothers, that is a different issue because they know you on a, on a very close uh, issue. So therefore, they know that you're different from them. So what you need to do is you need to just be yourself and just tell them you love them and, and that God loves them. And that if they give you opportunity, you want to share God's love with them. And so, uh, so I, I found that helped me because I'm not there to attack them. I'm not there to, to, to disgrace them or in any way, but I'm there to show them that God loves them and I love them. And, uh, and, and uh, so I wanted to be able to, you have to speak into your life and I hope that they can speak into my life. So if you take that attitude of just helping somebody and not say anything, they could have good food, good rest, good accommodation, and then they'll die going to hell. So it depends on how much you love them to, to go that one step further. Oh, that's good. 
Thanks, David, Jim. I heard a, a speaker uh, talking on this subject, and he, that's one of the verses I quoted, 1 Corinthians 2, 1 to 5. Uh, he says, we're all qualified if we're afraid, because the Apostle Paul says, I came to you with fear and trembling, and I don't have masterful speech and, and all these things. So he goes, if you're scared to witness, we're all qualified, because the Apostle Paul felt the same thing. And the other thing he said, and I thought was really good, he said, if... Um, if someone said to you, jump in a freezing cold lake, you'd say, no way, like, that's crazy. I'm not going to do that. You'd be scared most likely to do it, unless you're one of these polar bear swimmers or whatever. But you'd be like, no way, that's crazy. I won't do it. But if you saw a child fall into a lake of freezing water, your fear of jumping in the water would be removed because of your love for the child. You would dive right in to get the child out. And yeah. he compared it to our witness. If we truly believe, as Peter's saying, that people will go to hell if they do not receive Jesus Christ, our fear of talking to them should be overridden by our love for them that we don't want them going to hell. Yeah. Um, and I just thought it's really great. So we're, we are afraid. <laughs> when I witness to people, I'm always afraid my knees are knocking. But once I start doing it, I notice that it's like, okay, the knees aren't knocking anymore. Yeah. Uh, but before I get to them, I'm terrified. <laughs> yeah. Every time. Every time. Yeah. And uh, yeah. And I hear what you're saying. I, and uh, I totally agree. Um, I just wonder whether or not our nerve is being affected by the, our inability to gather together this past year. Um, because there is something about hearing each other every week, sing praises and make common claims about the reality of Jesus that encourages us the other six days. Um, anyhow. Yeah, no, it's good. Good conversation. All was, right. Go ahead. I was just going to say that in some ways I found COVID has made it easier to speak to people. Um, Is that right, eh? Yeah. Um, I, I found that because it's not just COVID. It's as someone else was saying, it's it's all the political machinations that are that are going on. And there's so things are changing so quickly. And um, I mean, how many times do we hear the word it's unprecedented? It's unprecedented. And I find that I, I found that people who are not believers their their heads are whirling and they're going, what's going on? Yeah, that's true. And as a result of that, I find that, you know, I, I can share what I believe and say, this is how I view what's going on. And there's nothing that's happening now that, that, that the Bible doesn't tell us is going to happen. And it's happening before your, our eyes. And, you know, it's, it's maybe a view that they've not considered before. So I, I find that it, that it almost gives a, it almost gives a, um, an opportunity because people are so scared and, and so concerned about, about what's going on that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, that's good. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's, that's encouraging. I like Michelle COVID has given you time to also know your neighbors. Yeah. To, to slow down. Yeah. It is an opportunity as well. It, it cuts both ways. Um, but I think, yeah, Peter gives us this, this challenge at the end, he says, remember who you are. I mean, that's one of the themes in the entire book of Peter. Remember whose you are. Remember who you are and live it out. Um, recognizing that as an elect exile is not always going to be easy. And so, yeah, so he's going to shift gears next. Oh, next is going to be, uh, 
next week's going to be quite a lot of fun. Uh, lots of good, uh, good, good explorations next week. Uh, let me uh, close our time in prayer. Thank you, everyone, for uh, for contributing. I, I love the uh, the chat, and every now and then I'll miss something, but I'll try to I'll try to see it. Um, but I appreciate everybody's contributions. This is the best we can do. It's on Zoom, but I think it it, it works. I mean, we have lots of interaction, so this is good. Let me uh, close our time in prayer, and uh, then we will gather again next week. All right. Lord, thank you for your grace and for your kindness. Thank you that uh, you have made us. Um, we are your chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy people, holy nation, your special possession. And we are called to declare the excellencies of you who called us out of darkness. Oh, let us hold on to this and let us live out who we already are because of your grace. Your grace is a starting point, but let us live in response to that. We pray that you would encourage us this week as we experience challenges uh, in our workplace or at school or in our circles with our families and friends. We do pray that you would encourage us to proclaim the excellencies of your goodness and who you are. Help us not to lose nerve, but to keep on going. To, that we would gird up the loins of our minds and follow you in all that we do. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, everyone. We will see you next week. Yeah. David, just I want to... Thanks for participating in this class. If you've been engaging in classes online, but you're not a part of a church community, we would love to have you join us. You can go to cachurch.ca to find out more about getting involved in the life and mission of CA Church.